TED Audio Collective. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Hello, I'm Chris Anderson. Welcome to the TED interview. We're continuing to explore how we can emerge from the current pandemic and rebuild a better world than the one we had before. Today, we do that in the realm of finance with PayPal CEO, Dan Shawman. Now, when most of us think of PayPal, I guess we think of buying something online or paying a friend back for a drink using Venmo. But PayPal has also become a major financial services player And during the pandemic, it has provided loans to small businesses and distributed stimulus checks. The pandemic has laid bare some financial truths that were easier to overlook before. We can see all the more clearly now that lots of small businesses and individuals live on the edge of financial disaster all the time. Dan has been thinking hard about this since even before the crisis began. A few months ago, his company did some pioneering research into the financial health of its own employees. This was a real highlight for me in the interview. Dan tells us why that research drove the company to identify a powerful new data point, net disposable income, NDI. He explains why that number matters and why companies should care about it now more than ever. You're in very good hands for this interview today with Ted's business curator, Corey Hajim, taking the lead. She interviewed Dan live at TED's main annual conference, which is happening virtually right now. The live interviews are normally viewed only by paid conference attendees, but we're sharing the best of them here on this podcast to spread these important ideas more broadly. You'll also hear TED's current affairs curator, Whitney Pennington-Rogers, chipping in with some thoughtful questions from our community. So it's my pleasure now to hand the reins over to Corey. Hi, everyone. So the past couple of months have been economically devastating to the business community, especially small business owners and their employees. Building back better for business is certainly a daunting prospect, but also an opportunity. So I'm really excited to have Dan here with us. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having me, Corey. Pleasure to be here with you. So let's dive right in. Within a few months of this pandemic's arrival, more than 30 million people have filed for unemployment in the United States alone. These are certainly unusual circumstances, but it seems clear we were running very close to the edge. And now so many businesses and their employees are facing huge financial challenges. 
How worried are you? Well, I think the um, crisis has exposed three things. Obviously, it's a health crisis for so many people. Second thing is that health crisis has ricocheted and the world is now in an economic crisis. And the third crisis that we don't talk so much about, but I think is impacting the way that we're going to live our lives going forward, is this is a psychological crisis as well. People are re-examining their place in the world, what's happening in the world, how they're going to live their lives, both in the pandemic and post-pandemic. And so I think this is uh, something that each of those phases will need to be uh, dealt with. But you said this, and I completely agree with you. There was an economic crisis happening well before the pandemic exposes. It's kind of like the water level came down um, and exposed what was already there. For instance, you have over 70 million adults that are really outside of the financial system spending over $140 billion on high interest rates, unnecessary fees, and struggling as well. And so I think what this has really done has, um, because you can't ignore 20, 25% unemployment rates, it's exposed this crisis and forced a lot of people uh, into maybe actions that they might not have taken without this crisis happening. Yeah, I think that's right. There's so many challenges and so many opportunities. And I think you've spoken of this opportunity of digital transactions being helpful to people. And obviously the trend, um, as you've said, has massively accelerated um, and pushed us into this world even further. So I'm curious, you know, what does the world look like without cash? What are the, or less cash? What, what are the advantages and what are the challenges of making that transition? I think some of the trends that are emerging as we look forward is clearly this has been a discontinuous change in the trend line as we move from physical to digital. I think we've accelerated many forms of digital um, capabilities by three to five years. Um, And that can be from digital payments to telemedicine. Uh, to really uh, changing the face of retail and how we think about retailing, changing the face of entertainment, um, even changing the way governments think about managing and moving money and really thinking about digital currencies uh, going forward. And so I think there are a tremendous number of changes that will occur during this pandemic and coming out of it. Digital payments is obviously one of the big ones that will happen. I mean, cash has been around uh, for quite some time, thousands of years. I would not uh, be so bold as to predict its full demise. Uh, Many people have been wrong doing that. Um, But there is no question right now that you will see an acceleration of the demise of cash. 85% of the world's transactions today are done in cash still. But The really big change right now towards digital payments, as well as the shift to in-store contactless payments, as you said, and the real impetus for that is health reasons. People do not want to handle money. They do not want to touch screens 
They don't want to pick up a pen and sign at the point of sale. And so, you know, there is a, a demand um, for contactless payments and digital payments to keep, you know, social distancing requirements in place to protect the health of cashiers, to protect, protect the health of consumers. And I think um, we are going to see a, and we are already seeing uh, in our business, a surge in, uh, in digital payments across the world. It seems like a great opportunity, but how do we make sure that this transition is inclusive? I mean, you've talked about how so many people are underserved by the traditional banking industry. How do we make sure that those people have that opportunity? And it feels like a smartphone becomes an essential item. How do we address that? I've often said that really one of the big moonshots for the financial services industry is this idea of not just financial inclusion. Most people define financial inclusion by uh, somebody having access to a bank account, but just having access to a bank account is not nearly enough. I think what we need to aim for is how do we think about financial health? How do we make sure that people have the ability to have uh, some wherewithal uh, to create savings, to withstand some kind of financial shock uh, to the system. I do think that uh, mobile phones um, will be the way uh, that this occurs and will be very inclusive uh, going forward. There are going to be something like 6 billion smartphones in the world over the next several years. The cost of a smartphone is plummeting. So you're going to have ubiquity of smartphones across the world. And in fact, what's very interesting is in lower income populations, there is a greater penetration of smartphones than higher income because the, the smartphone is the only device that somebody has. Higher income individuals may have desktops or you know iPads, that kind of thing, but lower income can afford one device and they choose it to be a smartphone because they can get and live their life through that one device. And think about that one device. Really, you have all the power of a bank branch in the palm of your hands. And when you can start to create distribution of services, financial services, through a smartphone, you then are able to manage and move money in ways that we couldn't do traditionally. In the physical world, if you get a check, you need to then go to a cash checking place to cash it. You stand in line for 30 minutes. They then charge you anywhere between 2 and 5% to just change the format of currency from a check to cash. And then you have cash and you want to pay a bill. You need to stand in line again at a bill pay, and then you have to pay maybe $10 for an individual bill as a fee. If you do that via a smartphone, I believe that not only do you save a tremendous amount of time, because if you're outside the financial system, managing and moving money is practically a part-time job to go and do that. So not only do you save time and return time to individuals, but you can cut the cost of transactions by anywhere between 50 and 75%. And remember that $140 billion number that I gave you? Imagine, and that's just in the US. Imagine if you could cut that in half 
and return that to the populations, the most vulnerable populations that need it most. So I think there's tremendous promise in the use of technology to help provide both inclusion and make sure there aren't digital haves and have-nots, but also to start on this journey towards financial health. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize that you don't need a bank account or even a credit card to open a PayPal account. I mean, do you see a time where traditional banks don't exist or at least play a much smaller role in the financial services industry? Well, I think the entire financial services industry is evolving uh, right now. And so I think banks will always play a role or as as far into the future as, as I can see, but it will evolve. I mean, think about basic credit cards. Um, today, you think about a credit card and you think about it predominantly as a form factor, something that you pull out of your pocket. Sometimes there's status associated with what you're pulling out of your pocket, depending on the color of that credit card. Um, but really, I think those form factors start to go away and become embedded in digital wallets. So credit will always be an important element. You know, most people in the world, it isn't that their cash outlays exceed their cash intake. It's just that they're not evenly distributed. So there are times when your cash outflows exceed your cash intake, and there you need some form of credit to make up that difference. And so I think Forms of credit will always be an important element, um, but the way that you extend credit will change uh, going forward. The way that you think about scoring people in terms of can they handle credit? You know, traditionally um, in more developed countries, you use what's called you know FICO scores or bureau scores, but those ignore so many of the financial transactions that people who are outside the financial system do, like paying rent or paying their bills on time. And with data and information um, and you know machine learning around that, and we need to be careful that there aren't biases built into those uh, algorithms, we can start to do things that could never be done before. I'll just give you one quick example. We're one of the largest providers of working capital to small businesses in the world. We're probably one of the top five in the United States. So we've done over $14, $15 billion of lending of working capital to small businesses. 70% of that goes to counties where 10 or more banks have closed branches. And where do banks close branches? Banks close branches in neighborhoods where the medium income is below the national average, which makes sense because for a branch to be profitable, they need a certain amount of deposits for that branch to actually be profitable. And so in lower income neighborhoods, branches are starting to close. So why are 70% of our loans in those lower income neighborhoods? It's because we do machine learning. We don't even look at FICO scores or bureau scores. We look at a number of different data elements. And so we can lend into those lower income neighborhoods where nobody else can. And when we do that, the average sale of a small business goes up by 22%. And imagine the impact that has on communities and neighborhoods where they can finally get the working capital to expand those small businesses. And I think that's a 
perfect example of the promise of what technology and financial services married together can do. I think it's so interesting. I'm curious, um, you know, that tech industry has been criticized for amassing power over society, not that the banking industry uh, isn't criticized, but what do you say about people who might be worried about, you know, tech companies taking on even more influence and control over what's happening in their lives? Yeah. Well, I think the most important brand attribute that a company can have is uh, trust. And trust comes from the understanding that a company respects your privacy and will not sell your data or information, that it can perform transactions in a secure manner so that your transactions are protected. And I think those are kind of foundational. Any company needs to respect that. They need to assure that consumers have the privacy that they desire and the safety and security that is required to serve them the right way. And obviously, um, you've gained a lot of trust with uh, the U.S. government. Maybe we could talk a little bit about how you've been working with them um, to distribute some money through the Paycheck Protection Program. And I was curious, I've been reading about it, and it sounds like 30 million-ish small businesses in the United States are able to get those funds, but only 6 million have received loans. What do you think's happened? Well, I think initially the government, and I give them a lot of credit, they responded quite quickly with a stimulus package. Uh, These are massive numbers that were happening in very condensed timeframes. We were working with various agencies very closely with the uh, Treasury Department in terms of distribution of this stimulus. Um, And they were working literally night and day on this. The Small Business Administration was working night and day. But these are volumes that have never been seen before running through these systems. And the first tranche of those loans was very difficult. There are a lot of um, technical difficulties in getting those out uh, to small businesses. Um, And that first tranche was not enough. And it was quickly used. And there are still a, a host of small businesses that needed money. The second tranche that came out is still actually in effect. It has not been used up. And we are continuing to lend on that. We've been able to lend to Uh, some 50,000 small businesses. We've lent out about $1.7 billion. And our loan size, which really I'm proud of, is about $31,000. The average that a bank does is between $100,000 and $125,000. So we are lending to these true small businesses uh, on, uh, on Main Street. And we've been trying to, instead of people mailing out checks, which is you know, ridiculous in today's world. People aren't living where they think they're going to be living. They're with their parents or with friends or in a different location and mailing a check and then having to take a check and having to go somewhere, which you can't even go if you're shelter in place to cash it. Doing that electronically just makes a ton more sense. And we've been working with the IRS and Treasury and other governments uh, to distribute that electronically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a massive, massive uh, project for all of us. Um, Whitney is here with some questions from our community. 
Hello, Dan. How are you? Um, so the community has some interesting questions that uh, sort of following up on what you were talking about earlier about security. Uh, the move to digital cash could be one more step towards creating the perfect surveillance state. How do we avoid this from happening? I mean, I think this idea of uh, trust um, is incredibly important. And I think we hold a lot of this in our own hand as consumers, by the way. I mean, we need to be aware of data and information that we're giving and to what companies we're doing that with. But I think the companies that will be successful are those that have a high degree of trust. I mean, the idea of cybersecurity has always been important, but is ever more important as we move from physical to digital. And uh, that's where large data sets are important because a uh, consumer's identity is stolen every two seconds. And so we have to be sure that even when you sign in with your credentials, they're actually real credentials that we have to look at 30 to 100 different uh, elements of that transaction to make sure it's really you before we let that money out of your account. Um, And so there is a combination of making sure you have enough data to protect somebody, but also assure that your privacy uh, is held sacrosanct. And I think that is a bouncing act and one that uh, needs to happen uh, in order for us to do this successfully. Great. And, and actually, uh, sort of going from digital cash to digital currency, we have another question about uh, the opportunity that exists for digital currency. She mentioned that PayPal pulled out of Libra. Um, and what would it take for a truly inclusive digital currency to, to take hold here? I think there's a tremendous amount of promise as we think about digital currencies. Our pulling out of Libra um, had nothing to do with our firm conviction that uh, blockchain and other forms of maybe stablecoin currencies are extremely important and can be very, very helpful, especially in different parts of the world as we think about stability in different parts of the world where currencies can uh, fluctuate up and down. To have a more stable currency where somebody can know if they have that, that it's going to be worth X amount and that they can transact either with other individuals around the world or importantly at merchants around the world. And um, we are looking at all forms of digital currencies right now Uh, working hand-in-hand with a number of different governments. And I think we should all think about how technology is going to evolve and how currencies will evolve uh, as a result of that. And I think this crisis has really opened the eyes of many governments around the world as to the need for different tool sets to create stimulus and and to uh, efficiently and quickly and effectively distribute funds uh, to their citizens. Dan, I want to go back to something we touched on in the beginning about financial wellness. PayPal has done something unique in terms of calculating uh, how much to pay people and how much you should spend on benefits. 
traditionally wages are set by the market, but you found that paying as much or even more than other companies wasn't always enough. Can you tell us about that moment? Yeah. So I said in one of my opening uh, statements that uh, two thirds of, uh, of Americans struggle to make ends meet at the end of the month. You know, they are financially stressed and it kind of wreaks havoc in their life. And um, I uh, did a study um, to look at PayPal employees. We did a, a research study. Um, and I did it because I thought I was going to get back this great information that I was going to talk about at an employee meeting um, about how well we pay. Because we pay, to your point, at or above market in every single location around the world. And what I found is, uh, unfortunately, like 60% of our operations uh, personnel, our entry-level employees, our hourly workers, they struggle to make ends meet. And that was simply unacceptable uh, for me. I mean, I think um, the world is changing uh, in terms of the responsibility of corporations, responsibility of CEOs. And we have a lot of different stakeholders that we try to satisfy from regulators to shareholders to customers to employees. But I think the number one responsibility that we have is the health, financial health, Uh, of our employees, because nothing could be more important to a company than to have financially secure, passionate employees working for you. Because, I mean, nobody is going to serve customers better than employees who feel a part of something and feel financially secure and glad to be a part of that company. And so then the real question becomes like, How do you measure that? Because a lot of people think about living wages or a minimum wage. And we we thought that was insufficient. And we came up with a measurement we called net disposable income, which is basically after you pay taxes and your basically essential living expenses, how much money do you have left over for discretionary things or to save? And here's the really unfortunate thing. And I'm not proud of this, but remember, we were paying at market or above. So I thought the market would take care of this by by doing that. We found that uh, for that population, they had 4 to 6% NDI, net disposable income, after paying taxes and essential living expenses. That is not enough. You are going to struggle to make ends meet. And by the way, NDI changes location to location to location around the globe, right? I mean, there's a different NDI in Manila, a different uh, NDI in Omaha, Nebraska, than there is in New York City, et cetera. And so we basically said to ourselves, we need to take NDI to 20%. And that's a huge shift from four to six to 20%. But at 20%, you actually have the ability to save and to put money away, and to take care of discretionary expenses. And so we did a pretty massive reorientation of our compensation systems. We lowered the cost of benefits by 58%, because benefits are like a regressive tax. Like you pay the same amount no matter what your salary is. And so we had a lot of employees who weren't taking health care benefits 
because it costs too much to go and do that. So we lowered it by 58%. We made every single employee of PayPal a shareholder and an owner of the business so that they could be a part of the success of PayPal going forward. We raised salaries where we needed to go and do that. And then we wrapped all of that into a financial education program because people had never gotten equity before. They're trying to think through like, how do I save now that I've got incremental dollars to go and do that? And, um, you know, that costs us quite a bit of money. But I, I really feel just like we spent a lot of money to take care of customers, as you mentioned up front in COVID-19, that companies need to stand for more than just making money, for more than just maximizing you know, our profits next quarter. I firmly, firmly believe that the costs associated with taking care of our employees, taking care of our customers, will benefit us in the long run multiple fold over the costs associated with doing that. And we're already beginning to see some of the impact uh, of that. And so I think every CEO, every company needs to really now start to think about, especially maybe as a result of this crisis. But as I mentioned, we had a crisis before this. Like, how do we put our employees first, take care of them? Because if you do that, you'll take care of customers. And if you take care of customers, you'll take care of shareholders inevitably. It's so interesting, and it brings up so many questions, I think, um, for me and probably our community as well. I mean, PayPal is a hugely profitable tech business, um, huge free cash flow and big margins. Do you think this model is something that every company can do, whether it's a tech company, a manufacturer, a meatpacking business? What I mean, is this what everyone should be focused on? Well, I think that and I don't want to uh, moralize or, you know, um, tell other companies what they should do. But to me, I think everyone should understand the financial health of their employees. I mean, that's like a baseline thing to go do. I, I, like what you do post that is uh, is up to maybe, you know, your financial strength as a company or, you know, where you put your order of priorities. But what I found is I thought the market could tell you that. Uh, You know, I'm a big believer in capitalism. I think it's a really, uh, in many ways, you know, the best economic system uh, that I know of. But like everything, it needs an upgrade. Um, It needs tuning. And, um, And at least for these vulnerable populations, just because you pay at market, doesn't mean that they have financial health or financial wellness. And I think everyone should know whether or not their employees have the wherewithal to be able to save, to withstand financial shocks, and then really understand like, what can you do about it? Because if people are struggling to make ends meet, they are not as productive at work. They're worried about like, what am I going to do with my kids? My kid just got sick. I don't have health insurance. I think I think there's a spiral that occurs. You think you're actually saving money by paying less, but the reality is, you know, at least in my belief system, you take care of your employees and other things naturally flow from that. 
They are more productive. They love being a part of that company. They take care of customers better. And all of those things inevitably accrue to the benefit of, of a company in terms of how it's trying to serve its ultimate end market. But it starts with your employees. So, I mean, obviously you believe in this capitalism needs an upgrade. And I think NDI is something so many companies should adopt. But do you think this happens through benevolent corporate activity? I mean, I'm channeling my inner Bernie bro here, but I think a lot of people would be skeptical that we should trust companies to do better at this point. Should the government step in to raise minimum wages, do other things to protect workers in a more structured way? Look, I think the government uh, clearly has a role uh, to play. And I think that um, the private and public sectors uh, need to work closer together uh, to address um, so many of the issues that we face in our societies across the world, Um, whether that be income inequality, environmental issues, health protections, privacy. But the way that I think about this is it's very difficult for governments to regulate around this because there's so many different ways of thinking about it. If I were another CEO, it's actually in your best interest to go and do this because it's a competitive advantage. Like we attract, I think, some of the best talent in the world to PayPal because we actually are trying to make some sort of positive difference. I'm not saying we're, you know, the be all and end all, but I don't think people should shirk their responsibilities of at least making a small difference going forward. If if enough companies did that, if enough governments did that, it would make a real difference uh, in the world. And then the second thing is you have to have values that support that. Those values are incredibly important. Those values should be all about inclusion. They should be about um, having a diverse workforce. They should be about financial wellness. Um, And when you do that and you attract the very best talent, then by definition, I think the single biggest competitive advantage for any company is their workforce. Strategies are great. Uh, you know, a whole number of things are great. You have a great workforce that's passionate about what they're doing and is financially secure, and they will do amazing things. And I think it's that kind of competitive advantage that will spur companies. So there needs to be a set of CEOs and companies that start to move in this direction. And I believe you're beginning to see more do this. Um, And once that happens, it starts to tip everything. And I think more and more need to do it to maintain their competitive uh, positioning. And that may seem like a self-serving way that people, why people are doing it. But honestly, I don't care whether they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart or they're doing it because it's competitively a disadvantage if they don't. Creating financial health for our employees is the goal. And we've got to get that done. It sounds like you think of this as a win-win, but it also sounds like you're willing to maybe think about your employees first and sell it to your shareholders later. 
I actually do believe that. And I, I think that the idea of a multi-stakeholder capitalism, uh, that is a time for today. Like we cannot um, just think that we have one stakeholder that we need to satisfy. We, we live in our communities. We live in this world. To have people struggling day in and day out is not good for any company. And we can only do X amount, but we can actually create financial health for our employees, and we should. Great. So we have so many questions coming in from the community. Um, there was so much interest in your net disposable income uh, program and a lot of questions around that. And, and one uh, asking about a rational way to address extreme income disparities. And perhaps you could expand beyond this program, just sort of ways that we might think about this in, in smarter, uh, a smarter way moving forward. Well, there's no easy solution or it would have been done. So I think there are a couple of things that I think about um, that may not fully address extreme income disparities. I, um, I try to think pragmatically about these things and like, what can we really do to start to address this without getting uh, overwhelmed by what that, how far away the end state is. So one, I think companies need to take care of their employees. And I think that will immediately help to address some of these income disparities. Number two, I do think that, uh, ironically, if you have less money, it costs you more to manage and move it. And I think that technology is at least a foundational way for us to think about how do we cut the basic costs of managing and moving money, like cash checking, uh, sending remittances, which are such a huge, important part of, uh, of the world's economy. Um, you know, you do it a traditional way. You know, you go into a store and then send the remittance to another store and somebody goes and picks it up. First of all, incredibly time consuming. And it can cost between 8 and 12% of that remittance amount that you're sending. So if you're sending $100, the recipient who so desperately needs it is getting 88 to $90. If you do that electronically, digital wallet to digital wallet, that can be like 3%. So you can get $97 from that. And so the amount of money we can return to vulnerable populations is quite large and will start to make a difference. And we have a ton of questions from the audience. Just one more before uh, turn things back over to Corey with her final questions. Um, this one is just, what are you most optimistic about and what do you see as the biggest opportunities for building back better after COVID? Well, I mean, one thing I'm actually optimistic about, and you know, I've and I've always been a uh, believer in human spirit and uh, and the power of an individual to make a difference. I know that sounds very cliched, but I truly believe it. And I think every one of us can make a difference. But here's what I'm seeing. I'm like beginning to see that at a much larger scale than I've ever seen before. You know, we have different platforms, either the PayPal platform or the Venmo platform. Venmo here in the US, PayPal across the world. The amount of giving that's happening through those platforms, whether it be to local businesses, to artists, uh, to musicians, to bartenders, to places of worship, to schools, 
to uh, NGOs, to charities has exploded on the platform, exploded. That's incredible, the amount of generosity that is pouring out from the global community around this. And we're just seeing like people randomly pay it forward. Somebody gives $20 to a bartender and that bartender takes $10 of that and gives it to somebody else. And, you know, we're watching that over our platform and that gives me a sense of optimism. I also feel like this period of time has exposed a number of things that were happening, but were invisible. And I think when things become visible, that's when you can start to address them. And, um, and I think there's a lot of attention on some issues that should have had attention before. Um, but vulnerable populations don't have as loud a voice as others. And now um, that voice is being heard because you can't ignore it. And, um, and hopefully that will create progress against some of these structural inequalities that, um, that have been there for a long time. Thank you so much, Dan. This has been a super interesting conversation. I think we could talk for another hour, but thank you so much for being here. TED Interview is a production from TED with special thanks to Whitney Pennington-Rogers and thanks to our podcast team. Our editor is Grace Rubenstein. Our podcast producer is Kim Nedefane-Peterser and our production manager is Anna Phelan. Our show is mixed by David Herman and our theme music is by Alison Leighton-Brown. Thanks so much for listening and stay well.